emergency 911, operator 6752. Do you need police, fire, or ambulance? Who's the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. Initially, when we got on the scene, there were a lot of things that just didn't make sense. The story didn't make sense as far as anything being cleaned up. It was more or less of everything looked staged. And if you care about Kathy Wan, if you care about Robert Wan, you would share that information. Having a murder on your conscience is no small load to carry. August 2, 2006, Robert Wan, a 32-year-old married attorney, was found stabbed to death inside the home of a friend in Washington, D.C., a murder still unsolved that is one of the district's most chilling, haunting, and mind-boggling in recent memory. Four people were inside the Swan Street house that night, but the only charges came more than two years later. Victor Zaborski, Joseph Price, a partner in a top D.C. law firm, and Dylan Ward, three gay men who considered themselves a family, were all charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and tampering with evidence. After a bench trial that lasted six weeks, all three men were acquitted. What follows is a podcast about the crime that had Washington area residents transfixed for years. Who murdered Robert Wan and why? I'm Paul Wagner a reporter with WTTG-TV Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I covered this case from the first days of the murder through the trial for the three men, a period of more than four years. Before we begin, I want to tell you a little about Robert. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where he attended high school before heading off to William & Mary in Virginia. After getting his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania, Robert moved to Washington, D.C., where he took a job with Covington and Burling in the law firm's real estate practice. Robert had a close circle of friends and was deeply involved in side projects like getting more opportunities for minorities in judicial clerkships. In 2002, Robert met his wife, Kathy, at an American Bar Association conference in Philadelphia. The two were living in different cities and began a long-distance relationship. They married the following year. We invited Kathy to be part of this podcast, but she declined, saying she just wasn't ready. However, she did give us a statement and wrote this about Robert. As my husband, Robert was a boyishly handsome young man who made me laugh every day. You couldn't take the New Yorker out of him, and his quick wit and humor often came through in the way he described a hellish day at the office or an idea gone bad. He was my safe haven, and I was his. For many, many months after he died, my ability to laugh or smile died too. Robert's love for me was sure and steadfast. We fell in love with each other over and over again, every day. His sudden and tragic death left me feeling completely gutted, amputated, and aimless. In July, I sat down with Glenn Kirshner for his first extensive comments on the case. Kirshner was an assistant U.S. attorney and the prosecutor in the case. His recent retirement gave him the freedom to talk publicly for the first time about a murder that has left him haunted. Here's what Glenn Kirshner had to say 
about Robert Wong. I have a draft of a book sitting on my shelf at home called A Homicide Life, which is basically what I lived as a prosecutor. And in a little um, vignette from that book, I write about how every time I pick up a murder case, and I handled hundreds of murder cases in D.C. over the years, over time I feel like I get to know the decedent, the victim, which is ridiculous because I've never met the victim. I catch the case after the victim has been killed with Robert because it was such an unusual case and we needed to figure out from jump why was Robert at the house that night you know I got to know well Robert's parents his brother his aunt his wife his college roommates his law school classmates his um, high school some of his high school friends um, some of his present-day friends who, who showed up in force in the audience during the trial. Mm -hmm. I feel like I got to know Robert even though I never met him. And I can tell you, never having met him, he is one hell of a wonderful guy. And I can say that um, based on everything I learned about him. Um, he was somebody who was going to do remarkable things. He wasn't looking for attention, but he was looking to help people. And just like his wife, Kathy, who is just looking to do good, yeah. um, you know, and I think that's the tragedy. And I think that's the tragedy of these men not being held accountable for the cover-up. Because, Paul, if they were held accountable for the cover-up, one of them would have broken and would have told us what the heck happened. In this first episode, we will explain the crime as police came to investigate it. The story unfolds like this. At 11.49 p.m. on August 2, 2006, Victor Zaborski picked up the phone and dialed 911. The call lasts more than seven minutes, in which the call taker refers to Victor as ma'am. The emergency 911 operator 6752, do you need police, fire, or ambulance? Oh, What's wrong, ma'am? We, uh, we had someone that was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know, we heard. Are they bleeding? You see someone yes. bleeding? Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where's they bleeding from? Uh, I think he was, I think in the stomach. In the stomach, is he cautious? Uh, Calm down for me, I'm gonna send some help, okay? Female or male? It's a male, he's a friend of ours. He was, spent, he was spending the night with us. Okay, and who was the person that stabbed him, do you know? Is, he, is, is he cautious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, listen to me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen, he... listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you, okay? Is he breathing? I'm upstairs, and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay, who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. Okay, who's the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. Okay, who's the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. We heard the chime of the door. <laughs> and it's 15, ma'am, calm down. 1509 Swan Street, Northwest. Am I correct? Yes, it is. The person that stabbed him, is he still in the home? I don't know. We got help in route, okay? Pardon me? We have help in route. Thank you. 
quoting now directly from a court document regarding the 911 call. The operator then told Zaborski to get a dry cloth, apply pressure to that area where he was stabbed. Even if the towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top of that. Never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. You don't know who did this? We have no idea who did this. Get the door open so they can get in. We don't know how they got in. Okay, well, I'm asking you now, is the door open so the paramedics can get in once they get here? What? Sorry. What were you saying? Is the door open so they can get in? Is the okay. door open so the, so the paramedics can get in the home? I'm going to go down. Is this a private home or apartment? It's, it's a home. It's a home. It's 1509 Swan Street, Northwest. The person had one of our knives. The person that stabbed him ran out the door with a knife? I, I think uh, okay, anybody get any type of description of the person that came in the home? I have no idea. We have no description. We heard we heard the chime and and we heard the scream from our friend. Okay. And so we came running downstairs. We ran in. So you both was upstairs and your friend was downstairs? Yes. You heard the door open and then you heard the scream? We didn't. I didn't hear the door open until after the scream and then we ran down the stairs and we heard, we, are, we have an alarm. And so the chime went off. Okay. Is the ambulance, we really need the ambulance. Okay, they in they, they right now, ma'am. Go to the door. They should be pulling up any moment, okay? I'm afraid to go down the stairs. Okay, the person who's downstairs was the person that was assaulted. No, we're in the, we're on the second floor. Okay, so somebody need to go downstairs and open the door for the paramedics. You're not sure if that person's still in the home or not? I have no idea. Okay, we have paramedics in route, okay? What time is it? What time is it at the moment? Yes. 2354. It's 1154, ma'am. 1154. Yes. I mean... I'll stay on the line with you. I will stay on the line until somebody gets here, okay? I won't hang up. We need them right now. I'm not hanging up, but we need, we need help now. Okay, they are en route, ma'am. They are en route. <sighs> Let me know when you hear the paramedics. Can you look out the window and see if you hear them coming? I'm, I'm looking out the window and I see nothing. I see nobody. Okay, it seems like forever, but they are en route, ma'am. They're coming. I'm here they are, here they are. They're there? <sighs> I'm going downstairs. Okay. I'll stand in line with you till you open the door for the paramedics, okay? <laughs> Help us. We have someone with stabbed They're on our second floor. <laughs> Ma'am. No, it's really an emergency. I mean, he maybe he's sorry. <laughs> Ma'am, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> to understand exactly what investigators think happened inside 1509 Swan Street, I am going to read portions of a court document. 
It's the arrest warrant affidavit for Dylan Ward, filed on November 19, 2008, a document that reads like a Stephen King horror novel. It was written by DC Police Homicide Detective Brian Wade and begins with the observations of paramedics. I'm now quoting from page two. Once on the scene, the two EMS workers, referred to as Witness 1 and Witness 2, observed that Mr. Wan was dead and had been dead for some period of time. More specifically, Witness 1 approached the house and observed a white male, Zaborski, standing on the front steps to 1509 Swan Street, wearing a bathrobe and speaking on a cell phone. Witness 1 asked Zaborski, what's going on? Zaborski did not respond directly to Witness 1, however. Witness 1 overheard Zaborski say something about a stabbing on the second floor. He then entered 1509 Swan Street, a three-story townhouse through the front door. Witness 1, an EMS worker for more than 10 years, went up to the second floor followed by Witness 2 and saw a second individual, Dylan Ward, in a bathrobe emerge from a small hallway where a bathroom is located. As Ward approached, Witness 1 confronted Ward and directly asked him, what's going on? Ward looked at Witness 1 but did not reply. Instead, Ward walked past Witness 1 and directly into his bedroom on the second floor. Witness 1 proceeded towards the front of the house on the second floor and observed a third male, Joe Price, wearing only a pair of underwear seated on the edge of a pull-out couch in a room at the front of the house overlooking the street. Price had his back to the door and was not applying pressure to Mr. Wan's wounds or touching Mr. Wan in any way. Witness 1 again asked, what's going on? Price replied, I heard a scream and said nothing more. Price then got up from the bed and keeping his back to witness one, moved sideways away from the bed. The behavior exhibited by Zaborski, Ward, and Price alarmed witness one. Specifically, as a paramedic for more than 10 years, he'd responded to hundreds of scenes involving victims who'd been shot, stabbed, or otherwise injured by violent conduct. Generally, in the paramedic's experience, inhabitants of the home will be yelling about what happened and trying to direct him as a medical professional to the location of the victim. At this scene, however, the observed conduct of Zaborski, Ward, and Price made the hair on the back of his neck stand up. Indeed, the paramedic was so concerned with the odd behavior that he visually checked Price's hands for weapons upon entering the guest room. Additionally, instead of directly attending to Mr. Wan on the left side of the bed, the side closest to the door, the paramedic deliberately moved around to the other side of the bed so that he can continue to observe Price while attending to Mr. Wan. Now here's witness two. She's an EMS worker and has been for more than 15 years. She immediately recognized that things were very wrong regarding the scene. She saw a large hole in the victim's chest, big enough to fit your finger into. But there was no blood whatsoever on the victim, on the floor, or anywhere in the room. She also noticed that there were absolutely no signs of disarray in the house or the room. Indeed, according to the paramedic, it appeared as if the body had been stabbed, showered, redressed, and placed in the bed. Upon examining Mr. Wan, the paramedics immediately noticed three apparent stab wounds to his chest. Upon checking for signs of life, Witness One found no pulse. His pupils were fixed and dilated, and there was no respiration whatsoever. Moreover, no blood was coming from the three wounds in Mr. Wan's chest. The paramedics immediately placed Mr. Wan on an EKG monitor 
he was completely flatlined with no heart activity whatsoever. The paramedics recall seeing little to no blood on Mr. Wan's chest as if someone had cleaned up the area surrounding the wounds. Based on a complete lack of any signs of life, Mr. Wan was dead and appeared to have been dead for some period of time. Paramedics then transported Mr. Wan to the hospital where he was officially pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. on August 3, 2006, just 36 minutes after Zaborski placed the call to 911. Continuing now with the scene, here's what Detective Wade wrote on page three. As the paramedics attended to Mr. Wan, police officers arrived on the scene and entered the house. The home is a high-end, nicely appointed, and furnished row house, valued at well over a million dollars. Mr. Wan was clad in a gray William & Mary t-shirt, gym shorts, and underwear, with his other clothing folded neatly and placed on a table located at the foot of the bed. Subsequent examinations of Mr. Wan's t-shirt revealed three cuts in the shirt, generally corresponding to the location of the three stab wounds to his torso. Moreover, it was later determined that Mr. Wan had in his mouth a night guard designed to keep him from grinding his teeth while he slept. According to his widow, Catherine Wan, one of the last things Mr. Wan did each evening before going to sleep was place his night guard in his mouth. Significantly, nothing in the room was disturbed or out of place. There was no indication that the room had been ransacked or searched for valuables. Mr. Wan's wallet, Mavada watch and Blackberry were located on the table at the foot of the bed within plain sight of anyone who entered the room. A bloody knife was also found on a nightstand next to the bed. From the position of Mr. Wan in the bed and the lack of any signs of a disturbance in the room, it was apparent that no violent struggle of any kind had occurred. On the floor near the bed in which Mr. Wan was found, evidence technicians discovered a large white cotton towel. There was relatively little blood on the towel. Indeed, there were only a few small stains and one slightly larger patterned area of dry blood, later confirmed through DNA testing to be Mr. Wan's blood. The patterned area of dried blood measured approximately two and one half by three inches. This pattern was examined by the blood pattern blood spatter expert and determined to be inconsistent with having been used to apply pressure to Mr. Wan's wounds as claimed by Zaborski to the 911 operator and by Price, Zaborski, and Ward in their statements to the police. Rather, according to the blood pattern expert, the blood pattern on the towel was consistent with the pattern one would expect to see if someone held the towel in one hand and a bloody knife in the other, placed the knife on the towel, folded the towel over the blade of the knife, and swiped the blood from the towel onto the knife. Indeed, there are areas on the back side of the towel which are consistent with blood having been absorbed through the towel where one's fingers were applying pressure to the knife that was making contact with the front side of the towel. Further, an absence of blood along the cutting edge of the knife blade is inconsistent with the knife having been used to stab an individual three times. Moreover, an examination of the knife recovered from the nightstand shows that there was blood on the entire length of the blade. Indeed, blood can be seen five one half inches up from the tip of the knife at the very top of the blade. 
given that the wounds to Mr. Wan's torso are only four to five inches in depth, as will be described below, blood should not have been deposited on the blade five and one half inches up from the tip. Additionally, the knife recovered from the nightstand was examined by a trace evidence expert. A significant number, more than 10, of white cotton fibers consistent with the white cotton towel recovered from the guest room floor were found in the blood on the knife blade. This finding suggests that the bloody towel came into contact with the knife blade. In contrast, while the knife used to stab Mr. Wan appears to have passed through his t-shirt in three places, no fibers consistent with the t-shirt were found in the blood on the knife. In Ward's bedroom, tucked away in a cabinet, the police recovered a cutlery set box. The box was designed to contain three items, a large carving knife, a large fork, and a smaller knife. The large knife and fork were present in the box. The smaller knife was missing. A duplicate knife was obtained from the manufacturer, and its blade measures approximately four and one half in length. The knife missing from Ward's cutlery set has never been recovered. Accordingly, the missing knife is more consistent with the depth of the stab wounds to Mr. Wan's torso than is the knife that was found on the nightstand in the guest room. An examination of the residence revealed there were absolutely no signs of forced entry. Now, also reading from the same court document, here's what was discovered during the autopsy. On August 3rd, 2006, Deputy Medical Examiner Lois Goslanowski of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for the District of Columbia performed the autopsy on the body of Robert Wan. The doctor found three remarkably clean, symmetrical, uniform stab wounds to Mr. Wan's torso. Importantly, there were no defects in the stab wounds, no drag marks, abrasions, fishtailing, or the like. Indeed, the wounds were determined to be perfect, slit-like defects. Each wound was inflicted at exactly the same angle, with the sharp edge oriented at 10 o'clock and the blunt edge oriented at four o'clock. According to the doctor, the wounds appear to have been methodically inflicted. The doctor also examined the bloody knife that was recovered from the stand next to the bed in which Mr. Wan was found. As related above, the blade of the knife measured five and one half inches in length. The depth of each stab wound to Mr. Wan, however, measured only four to five inches. The doctor, having handled approximately 80 to 90 stabbing autopsies, concluded that it's unlikely that a knife with a five and one half inch long blade would inflict wounds that were uniformly four to five inches in depth. The doctor also observed several needle puncture marks to Mr. Wan's body. There were multiple needle puncture marks on the left side of his neck three needle puncture marks present in the center of his chest, two needle punctures to the upper portion of his right foot, and one needle puncture mark on the back of his left hand. 
A review of the medical records coupled with information provided during interviews with the EMS workers and the medical personnel who attempted to revive Mr. Wan at George Washington University Hospital indicate that these needle puncture marks were not caused by any medical treatment or intervention. Moreover, according to the doctor, the needle puncture marks were caused pre-mortem and therefore inflicted even before Mr. Wan was found without a pulse by the paramedics. Moreover, according to Catherine Wan, her husband had no medical appointments of any kind in the weeks leading up to August 2, 2008, nor did he have any needle puncture marks on his body of which she was aware. According to the doctor, none of the knife wounds would have killed or even rendered Mr. Wan unconscious immediately. Indeed, unless otherwise incapacitated by being injected with some kind of incapacitating or paralytic drug, Mr. Wan would have reacted instinctively to protect himself and or physically fend off his attacker. Significantly, there were no defensive wounds whatsoever on Mr. Wan's hands or forearms. Indeed, there were no cuts, abrasions, lacerations, bruises, or similar markings of any kind indicative of a physical struggle or of Mr. Wan having acted to defend himself from his attacker. Moreover, there was little to no blood on his hands, indicating that he did not even clutch his hands to his chest at the time of or immediately after the attack, as would be a natural human response if one were conscious or not incapacitated. Dr. Goslanowski concluded that Mr. Wan was alive for a considerable period of time after the stab wounds were inflicted. Dr. Goslanowski ruled the cause of death to be stab wounds of torso and ruled the manner of death a homicide. It should also be noted that standard toxicology tests were performed on samples taken from Mr. Wan's body, all of which were negative. However, there are various incapacitating or paralytic drugs for which no tests were run, as there was no early indication in light of the statements that Price, Zaborski, and Ward gave to the police that Mr. Wan may have been injected with any such drugs while at the Swan Street residence. Dr. Goslanowski also collected samples from the decedent using a standard sex kit protocol. The swabs were examined by an FBI analyst with the FBI's DNA lab. Semen was detected on all swabs, with the exception of the two swabs taken from the lip area. DNA tests revealed that there was no DNA foreign to Mr. Wan on any of the swabs. Accordingly, all semen found was Mr. Wan's. Dr. Goslanowski opined that taking all evidence and circumstances into consideration, this finding is suggestive of Mr. Wan having been sexually assaulted. In summary, according to Dr. Goslanowski, the medical evidence firmly establishes that Mr. Wan was alive but incapacitated at the time the stab wounds were inflicted. On page six of the affidavit, Detective Wade goes into what he describes in the document as delayed reporting. Reading directly from the document now, Wade wrote this. Upon arriving at the scene, several MPD officers, that's D.C. police, noticed that Price, Saborski, and Ward were together in the living room, all wearing crisp white robes and appearing as if they had just showered. Moreover, Joe Price appeared to want to do the talking for all three of the residents. The three individuals were separated and transported separately to the violent crime branch of D.C. police to be interviewed. 
As part of its investigation, the police interviewed several witnesses. Among the witnesses was an occupant of a home right next door to 1509 Swan Street. The witness related that on the night of the murder, it was in a room that shares a wall with the guest room in which Mr. Wam was found. And while the 11 p.m. news was being broadcast, the witness heard a single scream come from the area of the guest room of 1509 Swan Street. At the time of the scream, the witness recalled that Maureen Bunyan, the news anchor for the 11 p.m. Channel 9 News, was on television. Accordingly, witness 3 heard the scream between 11 p.m. and no later than 11.30 p.m. The 11 p.m. news broadcast is 30 minutes in length. Significantly, Zaborski did not place the 911 call until 11.49 p.m. By way of background, and all according to multiple witnesses, both Price and Mr. Wan were William and Mary graduates. The two had met and become friendly with one another during their time there. Mr. Wan had recently started a new job as general counsel for Radio Free Asia. Wan intended to stay at work late in the evening of August 2, 2006, so that he could meet the night shift workers at his job. Accordingly, he had arranged to spend the night at Price's Swan Street home, which was not far from Mr. Wan's new place of employment. Mr. Wan had never before spent the night at Joe Price's home. Mr. Wan had previously informed his wife that he would be spending the night at Price's house, and according to Price, Zaborski and Ward, Robert Wan was exclusively heterosexual, and none of the three had any sexual relationship with Mr. Wan. That's all I'm going to read from the arrest warrant affidavit in this episode. In the days and weeks after Robert Wan was murdered, the case got some attention. The facts were intriguing, and it caught the attention of four friends who lived near the Swan Street house where Robert Wan was killed. In the two years before the charges were filed, the men kept their eye on the case. But it wasn't until Dylan Ward was arrested and the bombshell affidavit was released that they all decided to write a blog on the case and launched Who Murdered Robert Wan, a blog that eventually became the go-to place for journalists, lawyers, and people who were just fascinated with the case. In a recent interview with two of those men, David Greer and Craig Brownstein, we talked about their interest in the case and how it got started. First, here's David Greer. My first reaction was it didn't add up. Uh, and, and this is without knowing anything at all. It was just that it didn't add up. Here was a, uh, a home that uh, appeared difficult to break into. And um, that, and I just, I, I took a stroll over, I remember like two or three weeks afterwards or whatever, because you could still see the black dust where they were tracing for fingerprints throughout the house. And I just walked in. Yeah, it's about it. But I, I, that's all I thought. I, you didn't have much, and this was even before the story that came out basically um, where they said that the, the scene had been tampered. And that was, so I just thought intruder, you know, in and out, it didn't make sense. But this was your neighborhood. Yeah. So you were concerned about it. Was absolutely concerned. Um, but this type of, uh, where a late night uh, uh, burglary essentially is what was, what was being fashioned as, um, also didn't make sense. If you're gonna break into a house, you're usually gonna break in during the day when nobody's there. You're not gonna take that risk of breaking in at the mid, you know, night when everybody's home again that didn't that didn't add up craig brownstein also took note of the case but wasn't as initially intrigued as greer was 
I remember the murder. I lived two blocks away from it. But it was a long, hot summer. There were a lot of murders that year. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit of a, a murder spree, a crime spree, and it just disappeared from my radar, even though it was close, even though it was in the home of, you know, a couple of peers, number of gay men. Um, but uh, I, I lost interest. I lost track of it shortly after it happened. So when the story comes out that uh, they had filed a search warrant for Joe Price's office computer, and in that affidavit it said that it appeared that the crime scene had been cleaned up. For me, that was, whoa. Yeah, I absolutely. immediately went, there's something bigger here, mm-hmm. and we need to start looking into it. Mm-hmm. Same with you? Absolutely. I, I, so, you know, I, I'm a little bit like Craig. You know, but there wasn't a lot of information that came out in the first two years. You know, you had that first, then you had the story about the tampering, and then you had the story of Michael breaking in some, like, six months later. Um, and that was about... Michael the bro- Joe Price's Michael, brother. Michael, Joe Price's brother, breaking in. And that was just kind of an odd, like, oh, well, that's weird, you know, breaking into the house, but you didn't have... And then it stayed quiet, and I'll tell you, the community, the gay community, the LGBTQ community, really stayed, they rallied and stayed behind uh, Victor and Joe and Dylan, that that they were being ramrodded, that this they were being accused and along those. So they had wide support for two years before the affidavit dropped. It was when the affidavit dropped that, that things began to uh, take another turn for them. We did start getting a certain amount of analytics. As I mean, first it was just comments. And we would put up a post and suddenly we have 20 comments, you know, and, and it just started, well, I was going through the site and, you know, when, during the peak, we would get 500 comments on a post, on a post. On a post during the trial. Or and to you, that to was work. a great deal of comments. Uh, nice. That was a high number. You couldn't keep up with it. I mean, you know, I, to, why were you trying to re-comment on the comments? Just or just up, reading keep them? Keep an eye on the traffic. Just keep and an eye on traffic. Going. Basically, our audience was lawyers, um, probably all, all the law firms, all involved, the law firms, FBI, DOJ. We would see the URLs of the, the really? sites. Really? Yeah. In. I remember when every, we got every morning, White House hits. We were like, yes, office, executive office of the president. And now you yeah. knew, <laughs> you knew the depth of interest in this case. Oh, then. Uh, yeah, oh like, yeah. This podcast would not be possible without the help of producer editor Nelson Jones. In the next episode, we explore the statements the three men gave to police the night of the murder and hear again from bloggers Craig Brownstein and David Greer. If Robert was gay, people might come forward and talk about it. So, um, and nobody did. And nobody has in, you know, what, 13 years since the murder.